If you were surprised by the number of breaths a person takes every day and the amount of work your airways do as part of your immune system, you're going to be totally blown away by the skin. The skin, your epidermis, is your largest organ. The skin is also part of you that interacts with the world 100% of the time. At every moment, awake or asleep, your skin is interacting with the air, various surfaces, and your clothes. When you go hiking in the Pennsylvania woods in the summer, you have to worry about ticks. You're supposed to wear closed-toed shoes with socks that go over your pants, a tucked-in shirt, and ideally a hat. Even with all that protection, your face and hands are exposed. And all of you is touching cotton, laundry detergent residue, trapped pollens, the bug repellent. So the skin, like the airways, is acting as a barrier between you and the outside world. When we talk about immune diseases, it implies that your one immune system, the same immune system, is acting out just in different organs. Because this is true, we should see a lot of similarities between the immune system diseases of the lungs and the immune diseases of the skin, like eczema or psoriasis. I spoke with Dr. Zelma Chaisa, a dermatologist at the University of Pennsylvania, about this exact concept. So my name is Dr. Zelma Chiesa Fuxent, and I'm an assistant professor of dermatology at the University of Pennsylvania. So I have a particular interest in taking care of patients with inflammatory skin diseases, primarily focused on psoriasis, heterogeneitis, and atopic dermatitis. You may recall from the first episode that eczema is a skin disease that is very common in infants. Today, about 25 to 30 percent of children will be diagnosed with eczema. Eczema is actually a blanket term for a lot of itchy skin conditions. Usually when people say eczema, they mean atopic dermatitis or allergic eczema. For any dermatologist, talking about eczema is a great warm-up. Right, so when we're doing the diagnosis of atopic dermatitis, we, we look at both the signs and symptoms, right? So when we're talking about symptoms, we're, we're talking about what the patient is telling you, right? They're telling you, I'm itchy, I can't really sleep well. And, and those are symptoms that tend to define atopic dermatitis. We know that it is characteristically, it's a pruritic disease. Patients are itchy. And so if a patient tells you, I'm not really itchy, you sort of kind of stay, you know, you think about, well, this is maybe probably not eczema, right? Or atopic dermatitis. And then you look at the signs, you know, you look at, there are specific signs that we're looking for. We're looking at every female retinas. We're looking at um, skin thinning, right? If the skin is raised versus flat, we're looking at lichenification or a certain increased lunar markings. And we're also looking at the distribution of those, of those, signs of inflammation. And, and those things together can help you sort of get a more well-defined clinical picture. If you look at adults, there's really no specific set of criteria that have been developed and validated in this population, which makes the diagnosis even harder. Because as a, as a physician, right, you may not have a guide to, to help you answer whether or not this is the correct diagnosis. And, you know, there's a lot of diseases that can mimic the clinical findings of eczema. Interestingly, the definition of eczema, or sometimes people call it the itch that rashes, is basically itchy skin. And then that turns into redness, scarring with scratch marks and thickened skin, all, all because this person is scratching so much. But as she said, that's really just looking at the symptoms, and other diseases can mimic the same symptoms. So I asked her, why can't you just use the blood test? If eczema has triggers, shouldn't you be able to test for those triggers just like you do with asthma or food allergies? 
I think that's a that's a question that I typically get in clinic. And right now, we don't really have a specific biomarker for commercial use that can tell us, you know, whether or not if this patient has a topic dermatitis or whether or not if it correlates with disease severity. And so, you know, one of the things that have were discussed in the past was, you know, I, the levels of IgE, which are sometimes used in allergy. And um, we, if you look at the guidelines uh, from the American Academy of Dermatology, the most recent guidelines that I believe came out around 2015, those guidelines did not really recommend any biomarkers for use in clinic. And it's because they're the data that was available or is available at this time doesn't really currently support their use for diagnosis or for managing or, or assessing disease severity. And if you look at the, the example of IgE, we, we think that that is something that is elevations in IgE, which we know can be higher in patients with atopic dermatitis. It's more of a downstream effect in the cascade of inflammation. It's, it's not really the inciting factor or the triggering factor. Eczema, in my opinion, is the most frustrating allergic disease. It's literally called allergic eczema. And we know that having eczema puts children at very high risk of developing food allergies and asthma. Flares in both allergies and asthma are thought of as starting from a trigger with those IgE antibodies. But weirdly, eczema is just not characterized this way. What follows is a bit of our conversation where I try to understand why don't we understand what causes eczema? I want to ask you about an experience I had with my son. You know, a few years ago, he just suddenly broke out in this horrible eczema on his fingers. Um, it was called dihistrotic eczema. Mm -hmm. And it was awful. It flared out of nowhere. And it was so bad, he would wake up screaming in the middle of the night in pain. And so we started going to doctors and we went to like four different doctors. And every single one gave us a totally different opinion about what to do. And, you know, recently we actually tried an elimination diet and that is the only thing that seems to have worked, but it was so frustrating. Like no one had ever recommended that to us. And what I want to know is how could that be possible? How could four different doctors not know what's causing it? And I don't mean that in an offensive way. I just assume there's an explanation there. Right. No, I think that is a very valid question. And you know, I can speak from personal experience uh, treating primarily adult patients with atopic dermatitis that I'm usually about the, the fourth or fifth dermatologist that patients, you know, will sometimes encounter. And I think, you know, the diagnosis of atopic dermatitis, it is a complex disease. So I think we should start off with that as a disease that it's, it's quite prevalent, but it can sometimes be very difficult to diagnose. And I think there's various reasons for that. I think if it has to do with the clinical presentation of it. Sometimes, sometimes patients may only present with local or regional eczemas, such as dyshydratic eczema, which is the one you mentioned, where it only presents on the hands. And it, it, it can change through time, right? Sometimes a child may have atopic dermatitis or eczema in a certain area, and then it seems to go away. But then as they grow older, now it starts to present in other areas, such as maybe the face or the neck or the hands again. And this can be confusing for a doctor, especially someone who, do, who may not see a lot of eczema or atopic dermatitis patients in the clinic. Well, but then tell me, is, is eczema actually an allergic disease or a skin disease? And if it's an allergic or immune disease, should you be seeing an allergist or should you be seeing a dermatologist about it? 
I think that is another great question. And I, it's, it's a complex question. And I, I think we could talk about that for hours, you know, how to best approach this. I think, you know, I am biased because I am a dermatologist by training. So I will always, you know, you know, pitch in and, 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 and say, no, you should really go see a dermatologist just because I believe that we are the ones that we're trained to treat this, this skin disease. But let's take a step back. First of all, the, the, like I mentioned previously, the pathogenesis of the topic dermatitis is quite complex. And there used to be, or I think there still is two different camps, right? There's people who think that this is primarily in a barrier skin disease where there's a defect in the skin barrier that allows the penetration of allergens into the skin that then results in immune activation, that because of that barrier defect, patients are also losing more water. And that correlates with something called increased transepidermal water loss, which has been shown to be higher in patients with atopic dermatitis. And that is the camp that believes in the outside-in hypothesis. And I think that there's also another group that believes in the inside-outside hypothesis, where for some reason that we quite don't understand yet, there's immune dysregulation. And then that immune dysregulation then affects the skin barrier, which then results in increased transepidermal water loss, increased allergen penetration, and then kind of continues with this reactivation again, or continued activation of the immune response. So I tend to think that regardless of what camp you're in, if it's either the outside in hypothesis, or if it's the inside out hypothesis, I think at the end of the day, what continues to drive the process in the topic dermatitis is that inflammation that continues to be activated. Quick pause, because this is actually a pretty critical concept. When it comes to the skin barrier and immune diseases of the skin, there are two camps. One camp thinks that external triggers, like the mold in the lung episode, cause the skin to break open. The other camp thinks that an internal mistake causes the immune system to attack the skin until it breaks. In both cases, once there is a break in the skin, all sorts of bad things happen. Allergens can get in, bacteria can cause infections, and the skin starts to lose water. In the next episode on the gut, you'll hear a similar debate about how EOE, a disease of the esophagus, starts. And if you think about it, when it comes to diseases of the lungs, it's kind of the same debate. Did a trigger cause the swelling of the airways or did, quote, being atopic, as Dr. Gupta said, make someone more reactive to the cat pollen in the first place? One might argue that it doesn't really matter. It's a bit of both. And the point is to stop the system from spinning out of control. And so when we're, I'm thinking about treating patients with atopic dermatitis, I'm thinking about this is going to last and I need to come up with a plan that not thinks only about treating the acute flares, but also treating this as a chronic disease. I need to prevent those flares from occurring and how can I do that? I think the past couple of years have been remarkable for atopic dermatitis in the sense that we're beginning to understand more what those key cytokine players are that continue to drive inflammation. So for example, we know that interleukin-4 and interleukin-13 are two very important cytokines that drive inflammation in atopic dermatitis. And that if we block those two cytokines, we can help to improve the clinical signs and symptoms of atopic dermatitis. You know, we do have medications today, which are called biologics, uh, for example, Tupilumab, 
that is commercially available that can help block that signal. And that actually correlates with, again, improvement in the signs and symptoms of disease. I think if you if you compare, for example, atopic dermatitis to psoriasis, how we were with psoriasis maybe 20 years ago, when yes, it was thought to also be primarily a, a disease of keratinocytes or the cells of the skin. And then it was found that there, there was actually an immune dysregulation there that was occurring. And then it led to the development of all these current biologics that are commercially available that target specific cytokines that are important in the pathways of psoriasis. But those are not the same cytokines that are involved in the pathway of atopic dermatitis for the most part. So actually, out of curiosity, is the analogy of pulmonary fibrosis versus asthma similar to or somewhat analogous to the psoriasis versus eczema? Right. I think it's, you know, in terms of psoriasis and, and atopic dermatitis, the pathways that are involved in immune dysregulation in both diseases, for the most part, right, there are cases where they can share similar pathways. But when we think about psoriasis, we think primarily of a disease that's a TH17 driven disease. When we think about atopic dermatitis, we think more of a atopic dermatitis being more of a TH2 type of disease. So this, the cytokines that are being expressed in both diseases are different. There are some cases, and I've actually seen this in my practice, this, this sort of overlap between both of them, which represents, I think, a challenge for treatment. But we do know that in psoriasis, the, the pathways for immune dysregulation are different for the most part from those for atopic dermatitis. And that's why the, the treatments are different in, in terms of biologics. You know, there are some biologics that you can use for psoriasis that can potentially worsen atopic dermatitis. And so it's a very delicate balance, I feel, in some patients. This sounds like a frustrating whack-a-mole. It, 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 it can be frustrating, but I think at the same time, it gives you insight onto what is going on in you know, fortunately, we, we can manage those side effects. And, but yes, I think it can be quite frustrating for, for physicians and also for our patients, right? But, but I think you, you know, we have to be careful when we're talking about psoriasis and atopic dermatitis or eczema, even though they're inflammatory skin diseases, you know, that they belong to the same category of complex diseases where we don't, we, we know that there's an interplay of genetics and maybe environmental factors, immune dysregulation, all coming in together, they're actually very quite different diseases and we shouldn't treat them the same. You know, we, we do know that psoriasis, you know, because we, I think we, particularly in adults, we've been studying it longer in terms of comorbidities. There are certain comorbidities that are more strongly associated with psoriasis that may not necessarily be more associated with atopic dermatitis or eczema and vice versa, right? We, we don't tend to see that, strong association of other atopic diseases such as asthma, uh, hay fever, or seasonal allergies in patients with psoriasis that we deal with atopic dermatitis of eczema. And again, because the pathogenesis of those diseases, meaning, you know, asthma or hay fever follows more the TH2 phenotype that you will see in atopic dermatitis or eczema, and not so much the, the immune dysregulatory pathways that you would see in psoriasis. And, and maybe that explains in part why those associations with psoriasis are not there. If you listen to that last episode on the lungs, you are probably hearing a trend. Much like pulmonary fibrosis versus asthma, we hear the same 
Th17 pathway for one disease and Th2 for another. But Dr. Chiesa introduced us to the chicken and egg debate that is critical to the future of immunology. We know that the immune system and the barriers are both breaking down, but which one comes first? I actually want to go back to this concept of the inside out versus outside in. So is the difference basically what is the inciting event for that barrier dysfunction? Um, so these two types of, of, of hypotheses have been previously described in the literature, right? And it's a, it's a way to try to get, make sense of why atopic dermatitis happens in the first place. So you're right. It, it has to do with what is the inciting, you know, the factor or, or what triggers this in the first place. And so in the, going back to the inside out hypothesis, what, what is thought that happens here is that there's some form of immune dysregulation. Now, is that immune dysregulation being triggered by something that a patient is exposed to? Is that immune dysregulation something that's occurring, you know, that, that comes with the patient from the moment that they are, are, are born? We don't know. But what it's telling you is that for some reason in these patients, what happens first is that immune dysregulation deviation that then results in activation of the Th2 lymphocytes, which are the known drivers of inflammation in atopic dermatitis, and then go on to produce cytokines such as IL-4 and IL-13, which have a direct effect on the skin barrier, right, on the epidermis. And by altering that epidermal structure and resulting in inflammation, you then get, again, increased transepidermal water loss, you get increased penetration of allergens, and that in and of itself continues to drive the process. I have to interrupt here because that was probably a lot for you. Dr. Chiesa simply said that the inside-out hypothesis means that immune dysfunction happens first. The Th2 soldiers, the IL factor guns, attack the skin, causing the symptoms. Then the scratching and broken skin creates a feedback loop until the disease is now chronic. Now, with the outside-in hypotheses, what is being theorized here is that there is a defect in the epidermal barrier, and it is how the, the epidermal barrier is, is designed. And when you think about the epidermal barrier, it, it's a large complex of things. It's not only just filagrin. There are other structural components of the epidermis that can be mutated. What it's telling you is that there is that defect that then results again in increased water loss, which is associated with dryness of the skin. And again, it then allows penetration of allergies and irritants, as well as skin colonizing organisms that can help, that can result in infection of the skin. And when you have penetration of those allergens, then those allergens get presented to your immune system. Your immune system recognizes that they are something that shouldn't be there in the first place. And that results in immune activation. I, again, I don't, I wouldn't say that one, you know, one camp is right and the other is wrong. I, I think it's just an interplay of both things together. Okay. The outside-in hypothesis says that the first thing that happens is a break in the skin. Either a genetic dysfunction of the skin itself, or an environmentally caused break, or a microbially caused break, and that sets off the immune activity. I asked her this question again because how the disease starts is critical to how we prevent it. If the first step is immune dysregulation, inside out, then we have to chase the cause of the eczema, perhaps in the gut or some other system that got sick. But if the first step is the skin barrier itself, outside in, 
then we focus on what might be causing so many children to have broken skin. Eczema now affects, I think, like 25 or 30 percent of infants, which definitely didn't, you know, a generation ago or two generations. So what are we doing differently and how can we maybe we can never eliminate it, but how do we get this as low as possible? Right. And again, I think this is a very interesting question and a question that comes up in my discussions with patients often. I mean, you, you, talk, you can talk about primary prevention, which is trying to avoid the disease from developing in the first place, trying to remove those risk factors so that a patient does not develop the disease. And, and that can be quite hard if we don't understand the, or, you know, the pathogenesis completely of a disease, or if the pathogenesis is quite complex where you can't really remove all the factors. And some studies looking at whether or not if you can use emollients during infancy and if that can prevent the development of eczema. And, you know, unfortunately what the study showed was that there was really no evidence to support that daily emollient use prevents eczema in high-risk children. It's not saying that they're not important for, for atopic dermatitis uh, and that they shouldn't be used, but they're not really a, a prevention strategy. So I think in terms of, of primary prevention, you know, we, we're not still there yet. Other things that have been sort of discussed in the literature include certain risk factors, for example, you know, maybe certain maternal exposures or neonatal exposures. And again, if, if you look at the data on this, the data I think is pretty much all over the place. Like we don't have a strong, you know, I, I would say understanding of whether or not if certain maternal exposures could be risk factors for atopic dermatitis. And if we intervene, could they help prevent the development of eczema in the child? There's other studies looking at probiotic or antibiotic exposures. And, you know, there was one particular study that looked at prenatal antibiotic exposures in, in the Danish population. And what this study showed that was that, you know, mothers who had received antibiotics during the, their entire pregnancy, right, including first, second, and third trimester, and had a history of atopic dermatitis, were at highest risk of developing, of their children having atopic dermatitis compared to those who were not exposed to antibiotics during the entire pregnancy. Even though we don't know the story behind this, this could be a potential modifying factor, right? Do we really need to, you know, treat a woman in her pregnancy during the entire pregnancy with antibiotics? Can we treat for a shorter course or time period? Is that even possible, right? Um, and if it's not possible, then I think we should be you know, counseling the mother to say, you know, if, if you have a history of atopic dermatitis and you are being exposed to antibiotics during your entire pregnancy, there's a potential that your child may be at higher risk than someone who hasn't been exposed to antibiotics. So we need to be on the lookout for those signs and symptoms so that we can intervene earlier. There was an, an another study that looked at probiotics, right? And I think probiotics is, a, is an easy intervention that that you can find. There's, they seem they seem to be everywhere. I think nowadays, and what this study found was uh, that probiotic supplementation, when given during the prenatal period, during breastfeeding, and to infants, could actually help reduce the risk of developing eczema by about maybe around twenty five percent. But that's when you give it at all those different time points, right? So, so that is a potentially, I think, modifiable intervention that we should look into further. To summarize, 
people have been trying a bunch of different things to prevent eczema. One was covering baby's skin in emollient creams, but it doesn't seem to work. Another intervention is reducing the amount of antibiotics moms get during pregnancy. This does help. And finally, taking a probiotic starting in pregnancy and continuing after birth seems to show promise. So what are your thoughts on parents on saying, trying all the things simultaneously? Like, I'm going to take a probiotic while prenatal and nursing, and I'm going to try and reduce my risk of antibiotics, and I'm going to develop a healthy skin routine, and I'm going to, you, you know, try exposures to foods, all of it at the same time. Is that a rational decision? I think it's a, I think it is a rational approach. And I think it's not only a rational approach for patients, but it's a rational approach for physicians who are treating patients with atopic dermatitis. It's not just having the patient come into the office, looking at their clinical signs and symptoms and saying, here, here's a topical steroid or a topical medication, go and treat your disease. And that's it. No, the the management of atopic dermatitis is, is quite more complex than that. And I think patients and you know, their care, caregivers or patients with atopic dermatitis and their physicians need to really take the time to discuss and go over what are the potential risk factors for each particular patient, right? And then try to address all those things together. Because if you if you just treat the signs and symptoms of atopic dermatitis, but you, you don't potentially act on environmental factors, right? You're going to still have those triggers and that can make your disease more difficult to control at the end of the day. For example, let's just talk about smoking. We know that you know patients with atopic dermatitis who are in households where they smoke and have more severe disease can mitigate, which could be a sign that it's more difficult to control. So, you know, let's address this with our with our parents, right, in clinic, with our patients. You know, do you smoke? You know, what's the, what's the climate in your household? Is there a humidifier that you can use? Let's let's try to correct all those little things and take all those steps together. So it's not just you know, as, as a physician, I, I, I try to take the time initially when a patient comes in to try to address all those th- different things, because I think it is rational to think about, you know, it, it's, a, it's a, I like to think of eczema and atopic dermatitis treatment is multidimensional, right? It's like, you're, you're not just treating the thing that you're seeing, you're just treating all these things in the background as well. And you really need to see, to, to sit with your patient and as a parent, I think you also need to recognize that. And, and I don't think that uh, that is irrational. You know, you're, you're trying to do the best for your child and you're trying to see, okay, what else can be done, right? And I like to say that as long as we're not hurt, you know, no one is getting hurt. As long as no one is going crazy trying to do all those things, that it's okay. That, that it's okay to attempt to tackle all those different things. Let's recap. As we add in immune disease of the skin, we saw some clear overlap with immune disease of the lungs. Most obviously, that the same immune cell teams, Th2 and Th17, were involved in lung and skin diseases. We also heard a lot of the same debate. How much of this is genetic? How much is caused by the environment? Why do people react so differently to the same triggers? The other commonality that I want to point out is that when it comes to treating immune disease of the lungs or the skin, doctors recognize that your treatment has to be multidimensional. It cannot simply be about taking medicine. All the doctors talked about removing triggers, controlling the environment, in addition to medication. Before we end this episode, I want to make one more important point. In medicine, or any science, we can only know what we can study. When it comes to the skin, there's this whole debate about the barrier that we didn't hear so much when talking about the lungs. You know, the outside 
in versus the inside out. One of the biggest reasons for that, I think, is because it's much easier to biopsy the skin than it is to biopsy the lungs. And because of these biopsies, we're actually able to study the skin and see that the skin of people with immune disease is different. It's missing filaggrin, the specific protein. It's got different microbes living on it, etc. I bet if we could physically or ethically biopsy the lungs of patients with asthma, we'd also see very similar differences in their barrier cells. But of course we can't, so we don't really know if the inside-out versus outside-in debate applies as much there. Our next episode is about the gut. We understand the gastrointestinal, or GI system, as one of our largest barriers. So I spoke to a couple of allergists to see how much of the GI system acts like the lungs and the skin. And where are they going with their treatments? That's next time on Fixing Sick. Fixing Sick was written and produced by me, Mina Lele. Audio engineering by Chris Whitmore. The opinions I state in this podcast are my own. My guests only said what they said, and any mistakes are totally my own.